Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Hey, Lou, man, happy new year, brother. Oh, man, Merry Christmas, happy new year, and happy beginning of the school year, and, and happy MLK Day. And happy Kwanzaa, right? We missed, oh, all, we, we, we missed all the holidays. It's, oh, we, my, my bad, my bad. We, we, we are on vacation. Off. We are on vacation like Jesus and Mero, man. We take it like two months off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it's been a break, and 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 sorry to our listeners, we didn't have uh, anything. But you know, uh, semester ended, and and uh, I I took the family to California. We did the Disneyland for whew, oh my gosh, too many days, like two. What we stayed there for three days. We we hit the park uh, two days, and then we we spent some time with my family in in the Santa Clarita area, and then went up north to Salinas and Monterey. Uh, my wife's family and 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 then school started oh oh and then aha and then school started so we've been pretty busy how about yourself i know you have some uh <sighs> changes yeah man i am no longer a, a resident of uh the great state of new hampshire i am uh, relocated back to my home state of kentucky uh and so man i'm excited dude i'm excited about the opportunity to be here at the University of Kentucky, and uh, it's been pretty exciting, man. And I saw me and Lou, you know, some of us may, some of our listeners may have seen us at the AHA. We were we were kicking it, and uh, for a couple of days in New York City, uh, and so we're back, man. We're back, and a lot of stuff has happened, man. Like, you know, it's uh, we had a lot of interesting topics, I think, going forward in 2020, and I think our first topic is to to kind of recap. Um, briefly for today, man, um, thinking about the national title game that happened uh, last week, man, uh, LSU with a, a resounding victory over Clemson. Um, and so we, we're not that kind of sports ca- uh, podcast, but uh, we're actually interested in this OBJ thing, right? Oh, you know, Odell Beckham did not play in the game, but somehow was the story of the evening. Right, right. No, he was. Could we? Could we yeah. How do they? How do you young people say he was? He was lit. Uh, yeah, he was. Or as they said back in the day, he was on one. I, I I'm assuming. So yeah. Um, let's start there. Talk about OBJ. Uh, but before we get there, um, I watched some of the game. I gotta be honest. I saw the first half, and then I and and then I fell asleep. Um, so you could like literally see when I fall asleep, probably on my Twitter timeline. Cause I, I tweeted all throughout <laughs> the first half and then there was like nothing until the end of the game. Uh, I, I just knocked out. I just, and that was like, that was the time my son had got up. He was crying at like 10 30. Dad, I don't want you to die. <laughs> I was like, boy, just lay over there and go to sleep and leave me alone. And then like five minutes later, I knocked out. Um, uh. And then, and then the next day, it was like the OBJ news. And but before we get to OBJ, can we can we uh, do one of the things I tweeted before the game started? Always every year uh, before the championship game, it works out like this. I I, I uh, posted an image on Twitter, uh, so I'm at Lumore Twelve, and it's an image from Christian Science uh, Monitor magazine, and it's from 1968 of like Southern 
schools, you know, big time colleges and, and when they integrated. And in this photo, LSU and Auburn are one of the only few or LSU and Clemson are one of the only uh the few teams who, who had not integrated any any sports whatsoever. And you know, fifty, fifty one years later, you know, here here we are with the majority black team, not quarterbacks though, but uh majority black teams. Um and one of the interesting things that comes out of this when I was I was going through a newspaper, Louisiana Weekly, just just to go through it, no no research going on like as a as a book project just yet. I got something but but nothing there. And uh one of the articles was about how in nineteen seventy one a Louis Louisiana's governor was showing up to black high schools, one of them St. Augustine in New Orleans, trying to recruit black players, right? This is a sense mm-hmm. that, you know, LSU LSU has always been important to the state as, as a football school ever since Huey Long uh, right. decided he was going to make it important. And, you know, the corrupt Huey Long decided he's going to make it important in the 1930s. And here you have a governor showing up to a, you know, a black high school trying to get their black players to go to LSU. And at that time, there's four of them, and they wound up all going to other big-time programs like Nebraska and Notre Dame. Uh, shows you what kind of talent is there at these black schools. Um, but what's interesting, and I think this is going to lead us somewhere before we get to L- OBJ, is that none of those black players at that time in 1971 – went to Southern, like none of those top four big time recruits mm. went to Southern, um, which is shows you that what's going on at this moment, just so soon after integration, right? After this is, you know, integration with these school systems finally happening is a lot of these black players are either going to go eventually to these Southern schools and integrate these Southern schools or head up North or head out West. And so many of them, those talented players, are going to skip the HBCUs. But that brings our next point, our Hall of Fame point. That's uh, yes. No, that's my no. You you beat me to it, right? Like I think before we even get to the Hall of Fame, I think that there's this interesting moment, right? Like these black colleges. um, It's hard to see in this landscape where Clemson and Alabama and LSU and the whole SEC is dominant. But that the that these schools were were in many ways like second tier schools in their own footprint, right? That you know LSU never really wanted to play Southern, right? Um, um, or or Grambling, right? Um, you know, Ole Miss didn't want to play Jackson State, right? Well, I, you know, in my book, I talk about quite clearly Florida didn't want to play Florida A and M, right? And so there's this this not just because they thought. You know, I think not just because of the nature of segregation, but there was also this sense of that white supremacy gets undermined if they lose or even if the game is competitive. Right. Like the notion that white people are vastly superior uh, than 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 black folks in every endeavor. Right. uh, Gets undermined if they play. Right. Uh, and so there's this crux moment that 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 your uh, that image that you tweet every year because somehow the SEC stays playing in the national title game <laughs> um, <laughs> is that that these schools um, are really make a I think once desegregation happens they need to really press themselves. I wrote an article a few years ago about the University of Florida uh, and. Uh, President O'Connell, who the basketball gym is named after at the University of Florida, is actively recruiting. Right. And so he has this when he gets named the the uh, uh, 
president of the school. He was a Supreme Court judge in the state of Florida, and he was voted the most conservative judge in the state, right? Like he basically tried to delay Brown v. Board of Education. But here he is a decade or so later uh, out trying to help the football team recruit black athletes in a very similar fashion that you're talking about where the governor of Louisiana. And so you see, for instance, uh, in 1969, which was Jake Gaither's last year, he plays a Southern team that has Harold Carmichael, who's in the Hall of Fame, had Mel Blunt, who was in the Hall of Fame, had Isaiah Robertson, um, who was a first round draft pick for the L.A. Rams. Right. Those were the guys they had on that team. Right. And 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 fam, you wins. Right. Like with, you know, with Ken Riley, who was a longtime uh, multi-year all pro play for the Bengals at uh, playing quarterback. Right. He was all pro at safety, <laughs> but he's playing quarterback at fam. Right. Um and so it just kind of tells you the depth of the talent of the 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 depth of talent, the depth of coaching. Uh, and there's this interesting moment I think you pointed out that in that first wave that when uh, these talented players are in it, are, you know, the first uh, talented high school athletes in these integrated schools, they're not going to many of them are not going to Southern or Florida A&M, but they're also not going to to the local college either. They're not going to LSU, right? That they're going out of state, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan State. Uh, in the case of uh, Eddie McShann, who I talk about in my book, he ends up going to Georgia Tech, even though he's from Gainesville, right? Right up in the shadow of the University of Florida. And so there's a sense that there's all this kind of new kinds of recruiting pressures that really take shape in those opening years. Uh, and so I think that it's important to note that Harold Carmichael just and he's going to be in the 2020 class uh, for the NFL Hall of Fame, which is a, he was an All-American at Southern uh, University. And it's a good reminder that even though LSU is, has reached the kind of apex of the mountain with one of the greatest seasons in college football history, without a doubt. Um, that at one point in time that, you know, Southern was still uh, the big man, uh, you know, the big man in Baton Rouge. Um, and I think that's an important piece. Um, but that leads us up to OBJ, right? Because, you know, my man was lit. Lit, gone, <laughs> on one. And and there's two things that we wanted to do, and this is going to be a, a quick app, and there's two things we wanted to do with OBJ. First, we got to talk about him slapping. I know you might have kids listening. So slapping the officer's rear end right um and then there's him paying players and and my and i talked briefly with my class i have a couple sports history class one's just a you know u.s sports american identity sports and then another one's a black athlete class and and you know each time i came into class they they wanted the you know students wanted to talk about it i was like oh we're gonna that's interesting because we're gonna do this podcast tonight and that was on friday but here we are uh sunday making moves um making moves making moves but here's my thing about obj and and there's a couple things about that that situation in the locker one one of the things i tweeted out a couple days after it is that this notion this has nothing to do with obj it's the young man smoking the cigar right right this idea that you i will cheer for you on the field you are an lsu tiger you are you know a fan favorite you're a football player we love you on the field but the moment you get off that field you're just another N-word. In that context, that that officer did not have to bother that young man. And I think asking my students, white and black, and seeing it for myself, it's just, I don't think, like if this is a bunch of, 
white offensive lineman sitting there smoking a cigar. And I'm not going to talk about Joe Barrow uh, smoking his cigar somewhere because I don't know if he was doing it in the locker room or not. But I don't think if that, that guy's white offensive lineman smoking a cigar, he gets spotted, right? I think part of that situation is that officer seeing a black kid smoking a cigar and it just set him off for some reason, right? It's like, come on, this dude just won this national championship and you're bothering him. And I think that just shows you the depth of how bad things are down there um, and just kind of relationships between whether it's security guards or, or police officers. But then on the OBJ thing, I'm not, I'm not excusing him um, as, as some might do. I think here's the thing. When you slap someone on that, on the rear end, right. As, as, as a guy, there's a couple situations where you do that. One, you see it all the time in sports, right? If it's your teammate, it's no big deal. Occasionally you'll see it like trash talk, right? Like a quick slap. I make a three in front of your face. You're my boy. But I think what he did was more than just a slap. Like he was, his was like a, a legit hit slash push, right? Like it wasn't like a quick, you know, bang and I'm off your ass. It was a, like a real hard, like, like a hit. And I think you saw, we talked about this in the, in the and and pregame, right? Like you saw his reaction, like, oh, oops, I, I I did it a bit much, right? But then the third part to that is like, it was just too much. There's no way that should have got out to the point where it becomes, oh, we might press charges, right? An arrest warrant, right? Like I think it's like, all right, I, I absolutely agree, right? I think there's a couple things, right? If we, you know, I this is like you said, we're not defending uh Odell Beckham here because I think he was clearly in the wrong. Um, and then I think, too, is that, like, um, I think we forget, right, like how heavy-handed <laughs> the football players are, right? Like, I, you know, when I when I see my football athletes and they give me a pound, I'm like, yeah, oh, it hurts. Like, I'm going to need you to take – I'm going to need you to slow that down a little bit. Like, you you lift weights for a living right. every day, and, like, that's not what I'm doing at, 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 in my mid-40s here anymore, right? Like, this is not, like, what I'm doing. So you imagine that that dude wasn't prepared at this LBJ who's like, I'm heavy-handed, and I'm going to basically hit this dude, right, uh, not recognizing his own strength. And so he was clearly in the wrong. But I do think that what it did was – I think that what you're talking about is this policing of black joy, right? Oh, yeah. Like I think that if we if we look at the broader context of of African American history, right, is that there is this this stern notion that we have to police black joy, right? right? That black you know black celebrations have to be uh, uh, you know uh, have to be uh, surveilled and watched and governed by white forces, right? And this goes all the way back to slavery, right? Like you know it's like you know, like even in the state of Louisiana, right? Like they they take away the drums, right? Because they felt like it was it was stirring insurrection, right? We have to, right. you know, we have to govern black joy. So the fact that there's some deep, I think to me, some deep kind of historical roots in the sense of the police, like you said, pointing out to this young man that he can't smoke a cigar on what was the to me the apex of his at this in his young life that's what he's been working his whole his whole right. life for right like you know and i think that there's something to be said for that right and and then when we add the fact that 
Uh, you know, and I think that OBJ as a as an alum, as an active uh, as an active alum and recent alum of that program, he too was excited. Tyron Matthew was there as a bunch of bunch of former LSU guys on the sidelines, super excited, and he clearly was. Uh, not in the right state of mind to make good decisions. But at the same time, it's just broad, to me, it's the broader issue of policing joy, right? Uh, and then when you add to the fact that that the young man smoking a cigar, the big offensive lineman um, smoking a cigar, is not getting right. paid. Right, right, <laughs> right? Like, right. <laughs> so you like, you like, yeah. all right, you just, you know, he just busted his tail. He's been working on this for, mo- you know, since he was a kid, but for sure for the last, you know, it's, it it's, you know, the, it's early January. They've been working since spring ball, right? Since they came back to campus last year. So they've been working their butts off for 12 months. trying No to get Christmas it right. break probably either, right? Like just. Right, no, no, Christmas, no right? Christmas. You got to get ready for that bowl no game for New right? Year's Eve. Like they're, yeah, they're on, they're on campus all right. year. Right, they come back when well, they came back for 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 spring semester twenty nineteen. They were on campus for the whole year. They got spring break off. They probably took a couple of weeks off in the summer, but they oh. were there all summer taking, taking classes. classes. They yeah. were taking yeah, like yeah. no, you know, volunteer workouts, all this other stuff to get ready. They had a new offensive coordinator, new offense that I know for a fact that they were there also. Right. right? Who's now gone, <laughs> you know, by the way. So think, he's gone to to get them a he's 30 year old, right? In a, a, a job at the Carolina Panthers. So yeah. So I think there's some of that, right? And so I think to me the resting is about this policing and surveilling of black joy. Um uh, and and of course the irony is, you know, that these dudes have already basically been performing for large numbers of a predominantly white audience, right? Like they were doing it for their families and themselves, but at the same time, like when you scan the when you scan the audience and when you scan the paying and you look at the boosters and you look at the board of trustees and you look at the, the administration of the school and the coaching staff, the vast majority of those are whites and the vast majority of the players are black. And so I think there's a kind of all of that tension uh, at, um, at play. Right. No. And then on that, on that, there's a couple of things, right? I, I like how you brought up New Orleans, right? Cause New Orleans is really the synonymous with black joy as a city historically, right? Like, Right. And, and and as you see that in that Netflix doc, um, hip hop evolution, they finally got to like New Orleans, and 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 the bounce music, and and then the No Limit and Cash Money and stuff like that. Um, but you know that's a historically black joy place from from you know making that out of pain, right? Um, and mm-hmm. then the other thing with LSU and Black Joy is when they visit the White House. Um, and you oh, saw that video goodness. of them dancing, right? There's that white lady. In that video, and yeah. then the players are dancing, and people are losing their mind. Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that there. That's not the place to do that. And it's like, come on, man! Like, <laughs> these kids, the what the day, two days after they win a national championship, they're you know they're in the White House, a place many of them probably didn't want to go. I don't know. We didn't, you know, that kind of the politics of that was kind of snuffed out pretty quickly. Um, but yes. it's like you know, let them have their their fun. You know, this is this is it, right? For a lot of them, for for ninety nine percent of those players, or ninety eight. I mean, there's probably a number of pro players on there, but you know, ninety seven percent of those players, like this is the biggest moment of their life, right? National championship visit the yeah. White House, yeah. And instead of like embracing it and celebrating, people want to come down on them. Um, but the other thing you brought up, and I think that's fascinating to me, is is the fact that here's this kid who was smoking a cigar. Or here are these players who are at the White House and they're not 
getting paid. And that brings up the second point about OBJ. Before the arrest warrant that gets pulled away and him slapping that guy on the rear end comes up, he was making news right after the game for handing players wads of cash. And for me, there's two ways to look at this. One, OBJ is some kind of like revolutionary, right? Where he's just saying, he's painting this picture. He's like, like it's kind of hard. I mean, he's lit, right? He's on one, he's gone. But I mean, what he's doing just stands out so much because here are these guys, their coach gets a million dollar bonus, the opposing coach makes $9 million. The schools are taking a home money. Their conferences are taking a home money. And their players get nothing. And it just shows right there, right, the hypocrisy in all of this. Because the moment when these players get a couple hundred bucks, the reaction, right? right? Oh, my God. So it shows, it shows you that yes. hypocrisy. It's like, wait a minute. Everybody gets something. And the moment I give these guys a couple hundred bucks – Right now, or something, something's wrong with it. Right, the game's over. Right, it's I gave him a couple hundred bucks that deserves it. And then the other way to take it is that OBJ was on one, and he was he should have known that he was being selfish. Right, and and that's selfish in the sense that it brings attention to him, but it gets some of these guys in trouble. Now I was watching ESPN one morning, and Dominic Foxworthy is that it? Foxworth or Foxworthy? Foxworth, Foxworth yeah. or Worthy? Dominic Foxworth. Oh yeah, yeah, he was. He's a Maryland. Maryland, Maryland. Oh gosh, he was a. Um, he was trying to bring up MLK and civil disobedience, I believe, in the sense that this is a this is a this is an unjust law, so you have the right to break the law. But my only point of that is that this this is like this gets other kids in trouble, even though it is unjust, right? You shouldn't have this there, but it does get people kind of caught up in some things. Um, but to, I'll just I'll just side with OBJ being this kind of revolutionary and, and just pointing out the hypocrisy of the NCAA in that moment. Yeah, I mean, there's not. I mean, I think you're apps. I mean, it's like, I mean, we've talked about this numerous times on this podcast that the players, uh, especially in high level, top end Division One um, uh, athletics, man, basketball, football, women's basketball. They deserve a cut of the money, right? I mean, the reason that only reason that Dabo Swinney can make nine million dollars, let's just be real, as a head football coach, and his staff is one of the most expensive staffs in all of college football. The only reason that's even doable is because they're not paying the players beyond scholarships, right? Right? Like, this is just real, right? Like, and everybody's like, oh, well, they getting a scholarship, they getting a million dollar, you know, first of all, they're not getting a million dollar education. Right. Like LSU had this big thing. They had a big hubbub early in the season where uh, they had this brand new locker room that was all tricked out and fancy and whatnot. And they had, a you know, they had a leak and flooding in their right. library. Right. right? <laughs> so, you you know, you can't have it both ways in that sense. Right. Um, and so to me, I think, you know, LB, I had to think about OBJ as a revolutionary. I like that idea. Um, but I do think that he, you know, he wasn't in the wrong, right? I think that like part of it is like they don't like those kids don't deserve a right. bonus, right? Like you can't tell me Joe do, Burrow do don't like deserve a bonus or something like that, right? <laughs> right? Like you can't tell me the running back right. don't deserve a bonus, right? From the kid right. from Baton Rouge, right? Like, um, 
you know, I think that there's a sense that the wide receivers made plays all night, the old line. Like, you know, everybody, everybody, that was one of the most impressive games I had ever seen. I've been watching college football for decades, and there's an argument to be made. And I think this is fair, that this might be one of the greatest college football teams of all time, right? Like, they had a 5,000-yard pass, or they had 2,000-yard receivers, right? They had um, a 1,000-yard rusher. Dude, uh, Randy Moss's son caught six hundred and something yards right. worth of re- receiving right. yards, right? Like as, as a as Lamar a tight Jackson's end, right? Next tight end, by the way. Uh, I don't know what's I'm happening now. Uh, they got these receivers, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, um, so I mean, I just think that like in the whole scheme of it, man, you got to pay that. So I think OBJ, you know, he he was not making a rat. Like he wasn't he was in the state of mind to be aware of. Uh, the what that looked like, the appearance of it, and like you said, getting other kids in trouble who may or may not wanted to do that. Um, but it was, I think, the other question of that is, you know, they deserved it, and in the whole sense that the coaches are getting a bonus for just getting to the game and winning the game and whatnot. Right. But there's never any money for never, the players, nothing, right? Nothing. Uh, never, never any money for the players uh, is absurd, and and, he, and you know, I can't even do this. And I want to say this right here because you know. We don't take a lot of strong stances on on uh, on this podcast about a lot of things, but I think one of the things that annoys me, and I'm glad LSU won uh, for a number of reasons, but you know, I think that uh, you know, we, I don't know how many fans we have at Clemson listening to our podcast, but I feel like Dabo Sweeney is kind of the worst part of of college sports, where he, you know, he's the second highest paid coach in America. Um, and he's been very successful in these last, I don't know, let's say six years. Um, but he's always the first one to come out and say, you know, if they pay the players, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gone. I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, where are you going? Right. First of all, what job, like, no, like Bill Belichick don't make $9 million. Right. right? And we all know that he, like, he's the best coach in college and professional football. He don't make $9 million a year. So where are you going to go? Like some of that's just absurd. Right. And so rather than getting on and getting behind and saying, look, this is an unjust system and I'm playing a part in it. And I understand that. Let me help them to go out. And so I think to me, that's always a thing. And th- and this, I think to me, this is proven once again. Um, uh, and I don't know the circumstances of this young man who Travis and uh, uh, yeah. Etienne, the running pro, back right? from. Uh, no, no, he's coming I back. He was going pro. I saw that. No, he's coming. Why? Back. He's coming. Back. Right, and I think there's a certain sense, right? And so. Um, you know, for our listeners who know a little bit about us, you know, I worked, I spent the last five years in the Ivy League, which is probably the closest you'll ever get to the ideal between, you know, balancing athletics and academics, right? Um, and, you know, people have asked, like, you know, what's it like going to the University of Kentucky, you know, Coach Cal, et cetera. And I said, I've said this for years, um, and, and I don't have no role in the athletic department here at the University of Kentucky, but I say that Coach Cal is the most honest right. coach in America. And what, and what I mean by that is he always said, I've heard him say this numerous times, he would say to a kid, if you stay here, you make me money and you don't make yourself and your family money. Right. And I and I appreciate a coach who's like, the kid might not be a lottery pick. He might need another year of seasoning. But he's like, look, I'm never going to stop you from, I can always find new players. That's true. That's <laughs> and provide true. opportunity. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and and – and I think that there's something to be said for that, right? Like, you know, like he he could have won more titles if he convinced more kids to stay. And I think that like him doing that, and I felt like Dabo should have been on the table like telling that young man to go yeah. to the league. Yeah, like he plays running back, back yeah. which is like you can't. 
Like I don't like you. No, like his his answer should be like, and you can't, can't come back. Go get that money, right? Right. Oh, you a second? He's a second round pick. You go get that money. Third the round pick. The market for you is not going to be hard, hotter next year. You're a running back, right? The NFL is kind of right. Like why would like exactly? Sure, and the yeah. the shelf life. You play the most dangerous position. You just in the lost NFL, a year, really. right? Like you just because you're right because the way the self, shelf life works for the for the running back. The longer you stay in college, put not getting those hits, that's one year of pay you're not getting back from in the NFL, right? Like you're just, and you're not built right. like Adrian and, Peterson, and, right? We're just gonna. And, well, and it's just like most most running backs are not built like that, and so I think that to Eric me, Henry. like you know, that's to me is is you talk about like so if OBJ is selfish. Right, which is one of the critiques of right. his actions and thing. Then how do we explain Dabo Sweeney not telling his best running back Who's to go? He's been a star for the last couple of years, right? Like that's gonna go. Right. No, he's run for four thousand yards in three years. Yeah, you can't get those back. Yeah. Go to the league. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like to me that's absurd. And I and I, and that makes me angry as a as a as a professor, as a fan of the game, because it becomes the game is already hard to defend. Right. You know what we know, given all the information, what we know about, you know, uh, CTE, what we know about the kind of academic performance that these schools are putting these kids in um, and whatnot. And so I think that, like, for me to be like the coaches at some level have to have some moral kind of like some stand to be like, yo, this is what's best for you. Yes. Go. And if you can't if you can't do that, then you don't you definitely don't deserve nine million dollars. Like nah, that's crazy. That's, that's Dabo's ego trying to get another shot at the championship and and a couple more bonuses, right? Or or just notch on his legacy, right? Instead of caring about this kid, you know, this kid's career. Um and so that tells me you don't like I, can you tell me that you really care about the kid when that's not the best decision for it? Like there's no way that's the no best way. decision. Yeah. Now he's good enough to play. It's yeah, like it's time to go, right? And that's the whole point of going to Clemson. The whole time, the whole point of going to these big time institutions is trying to get yourself ready for the next next level, right? If you want to, I'm sure you can go right. somewhere else to get a better education. Um, actually, I don't. Know I should, yeah. the, school, the, the school will be there. No, I mean for real. Like the school will be there. It's been over, you know, 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, whatever. It's been there. Is that what you said? Yeah, <laughs> like Clemson's going to be there when he comes back in the summers. To finish yeah. right, like, yeah. and so I think that that's that's frustrating to me because you know college football is is a violent game and and they have the mandatory three years unlike college basketball, right. and, um, you know, and I think that that the coaches are should be in their best interest, you know, to to push the kid forward. Like I don't think they should go out and leave school and not get drafted, but that kid's right. get drafted first, second round draft. Yeah. <laughs> Right, like you know, he's a star. He's a stud. So I'm like, that's this is absurd, right? And, um, and you just create risk, and it's dumb. And oh, now he's gonna take out a what is he gonna insurance take out policy, a, a, right? an yeah. insurance? And, uh, yeah, that's not that's nah, not the same. Nah, never will be. Um, wow, Dude, we're at thirty. Um, real quick though, real quick before we head out, like we just like listeners, we just wanted to get back to this we know we've been like a, m- a month off of dropping something new we got a couple good things coming up within the next few weeks but if we didn't mention this i would i would feel bad shout out to the wnba for getting a new oh, cba yes. and i and i like to i like to think that it was a like a, for a pro league the wnba it's a pretty mixed league right in, in, in context of race mm-hmm. but if you've been paying attention over the last couple of years it, you know there are a number of black Athletes, black black women athletes have been on the forefront of, of speaking about 
trying to get paid and 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 not only that you know as you know maternity issues of maternity and maternity pay like someone like a skylar diggins um talking about that and mm-hmm. so what you see within the WNBA cba is 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 you know is money there right um for maternity leave um housing uh better travel um a pay bump of almost six figures for a lot of these players right and and i think i, I watch a lot of women's girls and women's basketball i have a young daughter who who who's 11 and, and she's not quite into that aau model I'm not throwing her out into the wolves right now we're just kind of slowly building her game uh, but i watch a lot of a lot of videos a lot of instagram a lot of training stuff and and women's basketball is going to be in great shape in a couple of years there's, there's a lot of really good ballers um at the lower level from sixth grade on up and and so to for them to take care of this now to set up the WNBA like it's a legit league with with revenue share at 50 percent is building for the future and so shout out to the to the players uh for making this happen and and to the to the union reps for for making this happen yeah, I think that's an excellent. I think when we get to the spring, I think we we are going to do an episode where we really connect that long history between, I think you know, black women's basketball in particular um, at HBCUs and 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 or Washington and whatnot, and try to do that legacy to bring it all the way back to this WNBA and this this, this new collective bargaining agreement. Because I think you're right. I think there's a sense that. Um, you know, this is a big moment. It's monumental in terms of the league and the future of the league um, and the opportunities, right, that they can earn a, a fantastic living without having to play. And I think one of the things that we're that this this new contract will do, and I read this as well, is that it will allow for the top end players in particular to not have to play overseas, not to play 12 months. And so their bodies don't break down. So they actually get to have a longer life, you know, longer careers without having to go to Europe to, to you know, really supplement their incomes. Um because the money in Europe was really long and, and and considerably better in many cases than the WNBA. So, you know, I think this is going to be, it, I think what it's going to do for the whole game is going to be monumental um, uh, and t- allowing the game to continue to grow and, and, and really the professional game to continue right, to grow. Right. And and I see it too. I'm telling you, there's some, there's some really good players out there who haven't even hit college and, and they're, and I, and they're exciting to watch, right? This, these are legit, like ballers out there. And I think growing it now in this way and, and showing the game respect is a smart business move. Cause, cause you know, these are the type of players that are out there right now when that NIL hits in California or in other States start passing, you know, those laws to, to start giving college athletes, those NIL agreements, they're going to be a lot of these women basketball players tapping into that. Right. Yeah, Definitely. And they, real quick, before we get out, I got to tell the listeners that Derek took me to – hey, what part of New York did we go to? I'm an outsider. It took me oh, straight I took to, the to the Bronx. Bronx. That's right. The I did. Sexy club. Uh, <laughs> little lounge for the grown and sexy. And, and, yeah. and had some, uh, some, some wings and watched football. So there you go. Shout out to the Bronx. Shout out to the Bronx. My, that's my my people's up there, man. Take care of me. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, I did take you to the Bronx. That, that was, was good, good stuff, time. That was very time. far away from the AHA in New York. Uh, and then I had to hop on a flight. We didn't see one historian. No, no, there. not at all. And then I had to hop on a flight that like three hours later. So there we go. That was nice. That was nice time. Good times though. So appreciate it. And 
And listeners, uh, I hope you guys had a great, great new year. We got a lot of good things planned coming up. So, so stay tuned. Hey, everyone, uh, uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast, like the podcast, tell your friends about the podcast. We're going to be doing it big in 2020. Uh, thank y'all for the support thus far. Happy New Year. And All right, happy peace. New year. Peace.